Hello and welcome to the Tucson Climate Chats podcast. This September 17th recording, our fifth overall, comes to you from occupied indigenous lands in the north central neighborhood of Avondale. As always, I am your host, Nick Spinelli, an AmeriCorps VISTA member working on behalf of Arizona Serve, Prescott College, and Changemaker High School to demonstrate how national service can address both climate and poverty in the urban core of the Sonoran Desert. Our guest today is Erica Prather, National Outreach Representative with Defenders of Wildlife, as well as an activist here in Tucson, Arizona. Erica, welcome aboard. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. So just as we did in episode four, we are actually going to start off with an article that I read recently. I'm going to quote the first few paragraphs of that article, and then I am going to let Erica run with it. This was just published in The Guardian yesterday. The title of the article is Birds Falling Out of the Sky in Mass Die-Off in Southwestern U.S. Subtitle, Wildfires and Climate Change Crisis Cited as Possible Causes for the Deaths of Thousands of Migrating Species Heading South for the Winter. Quote, thousands of migrating birds have inexplicably died in Southwestern U.S. in what ornithologists have described as a national tragedy that is likely to be related to the climate crisis. Flycatchers, swallows, and warblers are among the species, quote, falling out of the sky, unquote, as part of a mass die-off across New Mexico, Colorado, Texas, Arizona, and further north into Nebraska, with growing concerns that there could be hundreds of thousands dead already, said Martha Desmond, a professor in the biology department at New Mexico State University. Many of the carcasses have little remaining fat reserves or muscle mass, with some appearing to have nosedived into the ground mid-flight. Quote, I collected over a dozen in just a two-mile stretch in front of my house, said Desmond. To see this and to be picking up these carcasses and realizing how widespread this is, is personally devastating. To see this many individuals and species dying is a national tragedy, unquote. Erica, where do we begin with this? <laughs> um, well, I think we begin... Um with vulnerability and with grief. Um, I actually feel pretty confident that I had an experience with this this morning. Um, uh, this morning I was out and I actually picked up um, a green towhee. It's a really gorgeous olive colored bird. Um, and I know a little bit enough to kind of blow back the breast tissue of the bird to see if they had fat deposits because that's usually how we know if a species is either recently migrating or ready to migrate. Um, but I really couldn't uh, concentrate on it too much because I was weeping. I would actually not call it crying. I was weeping. Um, and I, I want to be really open about that and lead with it because I think that you know, I work for a science-based organization. We really pride ourselves on, you know, defending science and law, and I, I am really happy to do those things. But we, um, you know, I think that touching into the, the aspects of our humanity that can truly grieve for the loss of our interspecies relatives and the loss of color and the loss of sound and the loss of beauty because biodiversity is beauty is 
a profoundly important part of activism, healing, uh, mindfulness, and doing this work. Um, and so I picked up the bird. No, birds do not carry diseases that are going to like kill you if you pick up a dead bird. And I, I buried her in my backyard and, um, you know, cried through the whole thing. And I thanked the bird for its color and, you know, its life. Um, and I tried to sort of reorient myself past like my human guilt and sadness though a little bit and thanked her for just like choosing me to pick her up um, and, you know, for coming into my life and for me to bear witness and honor this bird's life um, and, and just bury her. Um, and I think that, um, you know, we can talk in circles and I will forever about the importance of biodiversity to our economy, to our health. I'm talking to you on a Zoom call because we're in the middle of a pandemic which we know that climate and the extinction crisis are going to exacerbate. 70% of emerging disease are of zoonotic origin, meaning they're jumping from species to species to species. Um, but on top of all that, and perhaps first and foremost, we are going through a great existential and I would say eco-spiritual crisis as well. Um, because, you know, E.O. Wilson calls this this age, I know that a lot of times we call it the anthropomorcine, but he calls it the Eocene, meaning the age of loneliness. And so aside from birds being, you know, critical pollinators for our crops and seed dispersers, and they control pests and they contribute, you know, whatever, billions of dollars, they contribute so much money, it's particularly in Southern Arizona to our bird watching economy. It is, a moral duty, I believe, to recognize their life and their right to exist in this world and just the beauty that they bring to us and that it is a tragedy that we have to be in a chapter of human history where, um, you know, where birds are flying out of the sky and our, and, and our, the trees as well, our interspecies relatives, our other interspecies relative are burning alive. Like that is a really um, heavy thing to hold. And so I think like, I think that whether whether like it's lobbying to a member of Congress, whether I'm talking to you in this podcast, whether I'm talking to activists in the community, we really have to acknowledge that we are dealing with a lot of death right now and death is part of life, but we really have to touch into, I think, um, a healthy, you know, grieving process that's rooted in the reality of what this moment really is. And so I don't know, I know it's a little bit of a tangent to go off on, but I, I just want to open with, um, yeah, that it's, it's very uh, sad, I guess is the best word to describe it with anything else. It's a good tangent to start off on. One of my mentors regularly reminds me, allow yourself to feel. Yep. And yeah, sometimes feeling is hard. Sometimes feeling sucks. <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate your vulnerability. Thank so you. maybe before we go deeper into the bird issue, something we could just briefly touch on. Um, 
did you use the term an eco-spiritual crisis? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we're talking about this time of death that we're all living through. Could you possibly connect the dots there and tell listeners a little bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. I, I actually think that, um, especially right now in the environmental movement where we are you know, attempting to go through radical shifts of decolonization and addressing white supremacy, I would actually say that I would argue that the eco-spiritual crisis is rooted in white supremacist colonial culture. You know, I grew up as a Roman Catholic, Judo-Christian ideology being that um, humans are, you know, the dominating life force, that all of their, you know, we came last, kind of as the icing on God's cake, and that all nature is here to serve us. And, um, we are separate from, I mean, even the creation of our park system in a way has kind of furthered that rhetoric because we think of nature as separate. We think of it as this inanimate object, like a diorama that we can go hike to and check off our national parks pass. Um, when, you know, these ecosystems, animacy, uh, biodiversity, these, these things are very much part of us. We are part of them. There is no separation. And so I think when I say an eco-spiritual crisis, I think it's that we have no tools to acknowledge that connectedness. We have no value for it in a capitalist colonized society. Um, we kind of always have to prove its worth again through you know, billions of dollars in recreation economy or bird watching or whatever. Um, and then we have no ways to properly process and grieve and have even ceremony around that. So I think it's, there's a lot of um, deep disconnect to what we're experiencing and what it's rooted in and how we um, kind of move forward with it. Yeah. Well said. So speaking of moving forward, maybe we should first start by moving backwards. <laughs> Let's talk about the bird issue. Mm -hmm. um, where should we start in your work or even with, you know, all the things that have happened there? Where do we, where do we begin that discussion? Yeah, sure. Well, I would say, um, you know, back on a little bit of like, just maybe tap, touching into that article, um, you know, it, it is one of those tricky things where, um, no, we're not sure why. Sometimes an event like that is called a fallout. It happens sometimes in migration when birds are moving over large distances, like across the ocean or the country, and they hit a storm or whatever, and that can happen, but usually they don't die. They just might be like really, really hungry or something. Um, but, you know, knowing that we're about to enter migration season and that we had catastrophic ecological collapse, which I think, you know, one thing I would like to say is that we definitely, because we are so anthrocentered and it's part of our eco-spiritual crisis, we do think about um, the loss of like damage again in terms of billions of dollars in California and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, but we really always are kind of late to the game or most people never think about the loss of non-human life in these events which does have drastic impacts on our food supply systems, on our, uh, on everything, you know, again, it's all connected. Um, but that this is definitely part of that. And there's going to be, you know, with, 
climate change, the climate crisis, there are going to be epic consequences that we won't know until they happen. Again, coronavirus is one of them. Um, we mess with biodiversity and, and here we are. So um, it's a, a delicately connected domino deck with one, one thing uh, falling and many things will fall. So um, anyhow, I think, you know, it, it's interesting, like the term, the canary in the coal mine is there because birds are indicator species, you know, they are, they're eating insects, they're eating seeds, they're eating, um, you know, getting their moisture primarily from plants. And so like, they will thrive where ecosystems are thriving and they will not do well where ecosystems suck and maybe not suck or just like very disturbed. And so, um, you know, their health is very much tied to, again, like stuff like habitat connectivity and ecosystem health and wellness. And so um, where birds do well, people do well. So that's kind of sort of a given, but probably needs to be said. And, um, and the laws that protect our birds, protect humans and protect democracy. I mean, we can just start going down that hole, but it's, it's a real thing. That's the, the crazy thing is that, you know, we just had a webinar about opposing some of this administration's rollbacks on the Endangered Species Act. And it's really difficult in a year like 2020 where there's so much happening and it is all connected. Um, you know, their High Country News just actually had an article out two weeks ago that said, um, wildlife uh, are, you know, are more imperiled, like it was actually called how racism negatively impacts wildlife, I think was the name of the article, and how there's parallels, you know, unsurprisingly with fragmented habitat um, for wildlife and, um, you know, lack of tree cover and all that and these very intentional red line decisions in cities that also negatively impact biodiversity. Um, so the systems, again, like are operating on this, the, the idea of otherness, othering species, othering humans, they're all very much connected. But the laws that protect things like endangered species, where I'm getting to at this point, I feel like as people are like, why would I care? Like I play around with that a lot. One of the, um, I think I told you this before, but one of the webinars I had with Audubon was called, I don't care about birds because it's just like, there's just so much to care about right now, you know, like so much and everyone has compassion fatigue and, and Zoom fatigue. So why should I care about the Endangered Species Act? Well, so we play around with that and that webinar was called The Spider That Stopped the Pipeline because there was actually a pipeline in Texas that um, was a Coke Industries project and they wanted uh, to put it right in this endangered spider's habitat. And so they didn't get their precious pipeline. And um, so again, like laws like the Endangered Species Act, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and Migratory Bird Protection Act, that, you know, all these things that protect species, again, not just inevitably protect human health and wellness, but protect our democracy and are very much critical to addressing climate change and climate justice. Um, a lot of times those pipelines and oil and gas fossil fuel projects are in BIPOC neighborhoods. That's no secret. So um, again, I always talk about the laws that I work on in particular, the Endangered Species Act, Migratory Bird Protection Act, and so on, as kind of like Harry Potter wands. Like they are really powerful and they can do a lot. 
um, in one fell swoop. And that is why the fossil fuel industry hates them and has been so incredibly active since the 1970s when they were inactive in disinformation campaigns and lobbying. If you look at our federal positions of power, they are primarily held in the current administration by former fossil fuel industry executives. Um, Secretary Bernhardt, who oversees all our national parks and wildlife refuges, was a lobbyist for Halliburton, and the head of the EPA was a former coal lobbyist. Um, and I'm sure you probably saw this last week that NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric, what's the last A? I don't know. Administration? Administration, yes. They just hired a uh, climate change denier to spearhead that agency. So um, we, that's, you know, again, like these accountability tools, these accountability laws that we are constantly fighting for and asking folks to advocate. And part of my job is explaining how important they are. Again, you don't have to care about birds. Great. You don't care about birds. That's fine. But if you care about corporate accountability and making sure that fossil fuel companies just simply cover their oil pits, um, and you, you know, it, you would, you should care about these laws. It's all very connected, um, which is both really disheartening and also encouraging. Because if you're attacking one, then you can, everything gets attacked. But if you're healing one, then you get to also heal on a kind of multi, multi-layered level. Um, so anyway, that's a little bit about birds, but we could talk more about the laws specifically if you want, or not. <laughs> yeah, maybe a good starting point with the laws would be, I have sometimes heard the Endangered Species Act in the present day, because correct me if I'm wrong, it was passed almost 50 years ago. Yep. I have sometimes heard the ESA criticized in the present day because people think that it either needs to be updated, mm -hmm. it's too restrictive, it's mm -hmm. actually harmful to some species that it's proposing to protect. And, you know, there's lots of different reasons for that. What are your thoughts on the effectiveness, the words, the effectiveness of that law as it currently stands a half century after it was first passed? Yeah. So, um, it is highly effective. It's, first of all, it's actually supported by an astounding number. something like 90% of Americans support the Endangered Species Act. So it just actually goes to show you that like those little key talking points are the fossil fuel industry lobbyists uh, effectiveness that they've like gotten their message out. Um, and, here, and here it is because, you know, a lot of what they're arguing right now, a lot of the rollbacks that we were fighting is that the Endangered Species Act doesn't address economics, okay? Wow. So, um, meaning that if there's, you know, an endangered mouse, let's go with that, and you want to build this massive housing complex that's going to benefit your community or something, like, you're going to make this economic argument. But what Defenders of Wildlife's stance on this is, and many of our allies, is that we are using science to make these decisions. We are not using politics or economics, because economics can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And you could argue that all different ways, but we want to make these decisions using science, which is what the ESA is based on. You know, there are tons of um, 
I don't know, like moving pieces with how a species gets listed and delisted, but it's all rooted in science or it should be theoretically. Um, and so, you know, right now what the administration was attempting to do is just even rework and redefine the word habitat, which is absurd because really I would say the whole planet is habitat. You know what I mean? Like, that, like what? And so um, them basically saying, well, you know, some a species like the jaguar, which we had all throughout um, the southern United States from California to Louisiana. And that species has been extirpated, is no longer with us. Males occasionally roam into um, North America, but the only viable populations are in Mexico. And so like they would be like, well, there's no jaguar here. So let's not list them as an endangered species. This actually was a real battle anyway. And our argument is, but their habitat is here and they were once here. They were one, you know, they're an endemic species. They're native to this region. Therefore they should be listed um, because they're gone. Like what? Um, so you know, it gets into these like really nuanced things that can be very like weedy and kind of like boring. But you know, the truth of the matter is like we're constantly saying no science, no science, please use science. Look at the science. Like instead of saying, and the science says that, you know, whenever we've enacted the Endangered Species Act and we fully funded it, another thing that is a reason it's broken, it's the same answer that I would give you with public schools and everything else. Like if you don't fund it, it's not gonna work. If you don't give your car an oil change, it's going to die. I mean, if you don't fix your bike and pump up the, you know, it's, so we can't, if we, if we have these programs that we don't work, but we don't properly fund them, of course they're not going to work. That's just, you know, kind of not rocket science there. So that's always our argument when people say it's broken, it doesn't work. Again, if we tell you where this population is and how to reintroduce it, but we don't have the funding or the capacity or the boots on the ground to do it. And this, this administration has been, you know, just totally infamous for defunding all of our federal agencies that would do these programs. Um, you know, yeah, of course it's not gonna work, but there's a lot of species that folks would be familiar with, the humpback whale and the bald eagle probably being the two most familiar. Once they've been recovered, they can move off the list. Um, so, you know, again, I think it's, I would actually go back though to, you know, colonial white supremacist ideology that humans are always centered and human supremacy is one of those tenets that springs from that, those principles that, you know, we just should be doing everything everywhere all the time. And that's, um, it's not only, you know, a question of morals, but it's, it's literally not sustainable. Like we're currently doing that. And like, you know, we're, you know, we are endangered too in our own way because of that. Like we're not a listed species, but you know, yep. Right. There's potentially something very dangerous in assuming that we are separate from the system that we are impacting so heavily. Yep. And you know what? I should I should correct myself there. Not potentially dangerous. It is dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> totally. To be fair. Yep. Yeah. So good starting point with the laws and the legislation. Um, let's talk about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Did I get that right? Yep. Okay. Perfect. Uh, what should I know? Yeah, so um, this is another one where you've got this like beautiful nexus of, again, accountability, 
climate change, extinction, all that democracy coming into play. So Migratory Bird Tree Act is really old. Um, it's actually over a hundred years old. So way before the birth of like all the big conservation laws. And it's not just for the United States. We're also in this treaty with Mexico, Japan, Russia, and Canada. That's because birds don't know borders, just like all the animals that are dying at the border wall. Um, these invisible lines that we create, you know, species don't recognize that. So we share all these incredible birds um, with lots of different countries, but those five happen to be in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And a lot of what it is, I would call it is like a locking your door at night law. It's very, very basic um, mitigation measures. So again, what that would look like is like, if there are power lines going in, making sure that there's like spacing that so that birds aren't getting electrocuted. Um, so that even other industries like wind and solar are mitigating for bird deaths. And of course, oil and gas, um, covering oil pits, like doing, just doing very basic. That's why I'm saying like, you lock your door at night uh, to, you put your seatbelt on. It's really that, like it's, this law is just that. It's nothing more, if anything, we need stronger conservation laws. Um, but the reason that it is being attacked or was attacked, um, so in 2017, it was a former Coke employee, surprise, surprise, who decided, who had a top level position um, in Department of Interior, that it was time to reinterpret this law. So they reinterpreted the Migratory Bird Treaty Act to say, well, if we didn't mean to kill a bird, then we don't have to pay any fines. And so, you know, that's kind of like somebody like involuntary manslaughter, just basically being like, yeah, whatever, go get a copy. You didn't mean to do it. Uh, like no trial, no nothing. Just like, see, ya. you told me you didn't mean to hit that kid on his bike and kill him. So I'm just going to take your word for it. And like, we're good. Like literally that is how the law was rewritten. Um, and so like the example we always use for this is Deepwater Horizon. So when Deepwater Horizon happened, April 20th, 2010, um, you know, it killed, that was one of the most catastrophic oil spills um, in the entire world. And it killed a lot of people, organisms, ruined ecosystems, and it killed over 1 million birds, if you can even like fathom this number. So kill a million birds. And for that, because BP was found guilty of not taking the proper safety precautions, again, here we're uniting human health and safety with, um, you know, wildlife. So because BP killed 1 million birds, they were fined $100 million. I feel like I'm Dr. Evil, like explaining these numbers. $100 Yeah, it's like, what? But so, you know, BP doesn't like to be fined $100 million for some stupid birds. So let's get rid of this law. You know what I mean? It's like, um, let's get rid of this accountability measure. So that is why, in case folks don't know, Coke Industries, the Coke Brothers, uh, kingpins of climate change denial and spearheading this whole fossil fuel uh, climate denial and corporate lobby campaigning. They wanted this law to be done and... So the way that the law was reinterpreted is if Deepwater Horizon were to happen tomorrow, BP would be fined absolutely nothing for bird deaths because they would say, you didn't mean to do it. Um, and so defenders and our allies were in a big coalition, um, Audubon, American Bird Conservancy, and so on, 
we um, took it to the courts. That's definitely a big arm of Defenders of Wildlife and a lot of our allies is our legal teams. And a federal judge just a couple of weeks ago actually ruled um, in our favor and basically was like, no, sorry, what are you doing? They even quoted To Kill a Mockingbird um, in, the, in the briefing, which was cool. So, um, so that means that, you know, that's a really amazing case of the MBTA, um, you know, kind of standing up. But then we also that, you know, in addition to kind of running the offense on put, having that in the courts, um, maybe that's defense. I actually don't know sports, so I shouldn't even use these analogies. It's okay. Her lane is the environment. <laughs> we'll stick to what we're good at. Don't know. Don't know. But in addition to that, um, Chris, you know, was working on uh, the Migratory Bird Protection Act. And so the MBPA, all it did was it just restored everything that was destroyed out of that law because in our world we know we don't know how things how fast things are going to go like is the judge going to get to that decision now or in two years or whatever so kind of concurrently with you know challenging the reinterpretation of this law we were also um yeah getting co-sponsors and building support for the migratory bird protection act here in arizona there was a, an absolute groundswell around resisting both the you know repealing of the migratory bird Treaty Act um, and supporting basically everything I'm saying, like bad guys do not get a win kind of thing. Um, all 21 tribes came out. So the Intertribal um, Coalition of Arizona, they all came out and opposed the rollbacks to the MBTA. And um, Arizona Fish and Game came out in support of the Migratory Bird Protection Act. So that was really great. And that was really helpful, um, you know, piece of information when Arizona Youth Climate Coalition and I were lobbying different members of Congress to say, hey, you know, we're your constituents and this is not cool. But not just that, you should also know that like the tribes don't like it and even our state wildlife agency doesn't like it. So um, that really helped us build the case and, and get their support. And we ended up getting four co-sponsors um, on the Migratory Bird Protection Act, which again, is even just sending a signal um, you know, to to the rest of Congress that, hey, my constituents value this, it's important, and um, we need to just get this law back into the place it was. You know, in a sense, it's absurd that we're even having this fight because given the extinction and climate crisis, we should be advocating for more laws and new laws and different ways of thinking and addressing these issues, but we've just been, this, this is an accurate thing, running defense, resisting, 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 um, digging our heels in the ground and trying to just not lose any ground. Um, and that's uh, difficult, but that's where we are in this political landscape. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to backtrack for a second, just because I've been so, so curious listening to you talk about this. This Migratory Bird Treaty Act, it was passed 100 years ago. Yeah. Why? I, I like I'm happy it was, but I guess I'm surprised. What yes. was the genesis for the law? Um, like rich ladies having horrendous hats with lots of bird feathers in them, and they were just like killing birds for their cool hats. That was one thing. <laughs> mm. um, and then also, I think even just initial recognition that humans could cause extinction, like in the you know the blink of an eye, like the passenger pigeon, we lost 
that species that was kind of the one that I think everybody knows like classic oh my god moment like humans can do this kind of thing um so yeah it was kind of like death of the extinction of the passenger pigeon and then this weird like feather trade that was happening that was like oops we can't have nice things like people <laughs> so um that was yeah like the genesis of because that, that's a great question and and also you know this whole time it's been very bipartisan it's like one of those like really quiet non-controversial laws that no one cared about until um until we had the fossil fuel lobby really running things the last four years basically so yeah yeah i think it's interesting just kind of drawing a drawing a thread through our conversation so far we have gone from people putting dead birds feathers in their hats to people being afraid to pick up a dead bird on their lawn because they think it could hurt them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That that's been our progression the last hundred years. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, there's many different directions we could go with this. So jump in if you're not feeling this. One thought I had is, okay, we're fighting to defend this one law that up until recently hasn't garnered a lot of controversy. You know, if you could wave your Harry Potter wand tomorrow, and just start making things happen, how would you, like, let me say it this way. Let's say that you can't, we can't create a new law yet, but we can update the existing law. So if you can wave your magic wand and you can change the Migratory Board Treaty Act, how would you update it? What would you do? Hmm. Oh, I don't, I don't know. You know, I will say that the, um, the Migratory Bird Protection Act has like a permitting process in it. So there's like this whole thing now where like if you're going to go out and drill, you have to apply for a permit through through this. And um, there's like a little bit of, uh, it's like not, not a lot for the permit, but that permitting fee will go towards like conservation projects because that's one of the cool things about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act is that when Deepwater Horizon happened and um, you know, BP was fined a hundred million dollars. One hundred million dollars. <laughs> um, Why is that it funny? Actually, I know. It's. I really think that that's the number in Austin Powers. Um, it it went to conservation efforts. So it went in like you know restoring ecosystems and watersheds and wetlands like around the Gulf, which again is hugely important and impactful for the fishing and shrimp industries and everybody else that. Is reliant on healthy estuaries and and all that. So, um, so I think that that's like an amazing result of that law. Hopefully, again, that law is incentive to, you know, put do all the basic measures so you don't have an explosion like Deepwater Horizon, um, and we never have to get to this point. I don't know. I would say like it's an interesting question. I guess just more broadly, maybe not specifically related related to that law, but like what what I do if I could change. I'm just gonna like warp your question. It's okay if we need to boost your <laughs> magical power level to yeah. get a good answer. We can do that. <laughs> yes. If I if I did have one thing, I think I would repeal Citizens United because. The corporations are people law, the unlimited um, spending on campaigns is how we landed with such a strong fossil fuel lobby and fossil fuel uh, executives running this country and our government. And so, um, you know, that's really, <laughs> I would, 
that's that's really like kind of the genesis cancer cell of all of this is like we need campaign finance reform so that we quit having um this rotating door of lobbyists fossil fuel lobbyists into our federal government and so that we maintain democracy we have science centered with our policymakers um and we quit you know just that that's that's my wish list my uh dear santa please repeal citizens united <laughs> yeah so so tell me a little bit about your experience and we we sort of touched on this at the beginning of the interview tell me a little bit about your experience with birds on the ground here in southern arizona we've talked a lot you know very high flying ha high flying uh, <laughs> discussions about what this looks like at a national level mm -hmm. of legislation. Tell me a little bit more about you working with birds or even your experiences with birds, um, mm -hmm. you know, here where we are today. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say that um, one thing that's really cool is that I've really enjoyed um, working with the local Tucson Audubon chapter because I think we can really complement each other in that way since they are very much you know, a group comprised of folks that know about what's going on. Um, it's really specific to this region. And, uh, and then I'm kind of, yeah, more operating at like the federal level. But I mean, I would say like, I don't know, I guess on the intrinsic thing, I love, like right now, I've been hearing the curve build thrashers. I don't know why, like I looked it up and it's not their breeding season, but they're so loud right now. Um, do you know which ones they are? I have absolutely no idea which ones okay. they are. <laughs> I feel like you would know. Though. They go... Mm. Like, it's very distinct. They nest in the, um, the uh, choya. And they're just really loud people. I almost was saying people. Um, yeah, they're loud people. And so they're really cool. Um, and I've noticed that the white winged doves are getting a little quieter this time of year. You know, they come, they migrate here in the summer. And there was some white winged dove, a white winged dove who nested in the saguaro right in my front yard. And that was really special to like see her on her nest. And I saw the little baby come up, um, which is really cute. And uh, I also love hearing in the spring, like the cactus wren, that's our state bird. They're really cool. Um, and then I love the Gamble's quail and the Roadrunners. I actually have a Roadrunner tattoo and a Gamble's quail tattoo. So <laughs> huh. there's a lot of cool birds here. <laughs> oh, I have a pick me all too. Forgot. They nest in the Saguaro. They're only like three um, inches tall. Yeah. And <laughs> with the understanding that I will I would like to have Tucson Audubon on the show at some point. So I'm going to try not to veer into their lane too much with you right now. Yes. You know, how often do you get to talk to folks here about birds and how aware do you think folks are generally speaking um, in Southern Arizona about bird issues? Yeah, I would actually say that I, I think that like that is, you know, Tucson Audubon's niche and they are exceptional at it. Um, I mean, I would say my work is more just like extinction narrative more broadly, but sort of whatever legislation Defenders is kind of taking the lead on in all the different coalitions um, that we work in. So 
Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is a high priority issue I also work on, which does have a bird component because there's a bird that nests in the refuge in every single state in um, all of the US. And so I work on, yeah, National Wildlife Refuge, um, the Endangered Species Act, Migratory Bird Protection Act, and then you know, kind of other stuff as, as it arises. There's always something new all the time in uh, this, yeah, political climate. but. Um, I think that people are very aware of like birds, you know, there's so many cool Audubon has all those little like um, facilities down in Patagonia and um, they have a great, you know, shop in the historic Y where I also have an office. Um, and part of why there's so many birds here, I can speak to this is that Southern Arizona is the most biodiverse uh, place in all of the United States. I don't think people know that. I think they just think like, Arizona as a hot like rancid desert full of deadness but it's not true like it's really special because right at the southern border um, of our sky islands you know we have this incredible situation where we have Sonoran Desert at the bottom and Alpine all the way at the top like there's nowhere else that that happens you can see aspens at the top and saguaro cactus at the bottom and right where that's meeting you know around the Patagonia area uh, it's kind of where like subtropical and neotropical starts creeping up. And so, you know, we're the only hot desert in all the U.S. There's five deserts in the U.S. and they're all cold deserts except us. So we just have this really amazing collision here in this part of the world where we have the most biodiversity of any place um, in the U.S. And so like, that's really cool. There are such cool animals like coatis, coatamundis. Have you seen one yet? Not in person, but I've seen videos. It's so special. I saw one in Arvipa Canyon in May, and I was like basically crying. Huge fangirl moment. Um, adorable animals. This is like their northernmost range. You know, like people, mostly if you talk to another American about this, like, yeah, I saw them on my vacation in Costa Rica. And you're like, no, no, I saw them in Arizona. Actually, they're here. Um, so like this is the northernmost stretch of their range. We have a lot of like really amazing birds. Like actually um, Nicole Thadavon told me recently there was some Quetzals spotted in Southern Arizona, which are these really um, special like sacred to indigenous people in Guatemala birds. Um, so yeah, we get some really like cool special things and just like freaky plants. And that is why I think it's so special. Like when you hike in canyons here, notice this in the winter, You'll look at like one little patch that's like maybe a foot, a foot across, a foot wide, and you'll see moss and fungus and then a little tiny cactus. And you're like, what is all this doing like next to each other? Like that's insane. Or sometimes I'll hike, yeah, especially in the canyons and I'll see a palm, no, actually the palm trees are all in here, but it'll be like, um, like a massive saguaro and then a cottonwood tree like right next to it. And you're like, what? Because, you know, that just speaks to the range. Like, cottonwood trees need a ton of water. They're like riparian area, you know, tree. And then saguaros need no water. And they're like two feet apart. <laughs> and then there's like everything in between. And that's really special when you really stop and, and consider that, that this is the farthest thing from a homogenized landscape. Like, it's just, it's just nuts. Like, it's, it's a cool, really special, diverse party out here. <laughs> right. When I think cottonwoods, granted, I'm thinking of a different species. I'm thinking eastern cottonwoods. 
but mm. that basically is the tree where I grew up in Northeast Ohio, that and red maples. So at least for my quiet suburb, when I think about wandering around in the woods as a kid, well, it was the cottonwood fuzz in June and all the sniffles that would come with that, but good memories, right? Yep. So what I wanna do with the time we have left, I actually wanna pivot here. Um, and I wanna ask you for all the folks that are listening who are like, wow, Erica, like you do really amazing work and like you're involved with all these different initiatives. How did you get to where you are? What was your path and what brought you to this place and really made you say like, this is where I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my thing. Yeah. Um, I had a very weird winding and not very conventional path. Um, I think that's always important to say because I don't have a law degree. I don't have a master's degree. I don't have any advanced education beyond a bachelor's um, from like a pretty simple state college. So uh, I think people always kind of get like a little bit in their heads about not just doing this kind of work, but also like talking with my elected official. Like I'm not smart enough. It's like, okay, we have Google, like you can Google stuff. Um, I Google stuff all the time, like, and I'm learning stuff all the time. And I have no shame in being like, I don't know. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So I, I, yeah, I have no background in politics. I'm not a scientist. Um, I actually grew up in Wichita, Kansas, and I have a really intense arts background. So I was a dancer um, all the way through college. Um, in a couple different dance companies and then did not go pro because I didn't want to hand over my life to that. But I studied English literature and um, dance in the University of Kansas. And then, I don't know, you know, like I've traveled a bit um, through Europe and South America and all these different places. And I just, after like my first full-time job, I just thought like it was boring and soul sucking and terrible. And I was working in search engine optimization and I was like, this is cannot be my life. Oh my God. I'm like, this no and so I went back to school and I thought since I was a dancer that I would want to become a PA and go into medicine and like work with the body and um, I worked as a nurse's aide as a pharmacy technician I've done all this stuff and then I bailed on that um, because I don't really like a lot of bureaucracy and structure and um, corporateness and I think I probably would have gotten fired as a, if I went into medicine to be real and um I had a lot of really great mentors at MSU Denver where I was doing these additional science credits. And, um, you know, science was very life-changing for me. I said earlier, I grew up um, Catholic and I really had pretty bad like biology and science education in the Catholic school system. And it just, it's so inspiring. It still inspires me so much biology and science and just learning about, um, again, our connectedness to all life. It was, it really was a big opener for me. And so I um, ended up just kind of, yeah, switching and taking like immunology and whatever, more medical classes toward conservation biology, ornithology, botany. And once I was kind of done with that for a couple years, I also did some research in a lab on soil microbes. I got on a plane at age 29 and flew to Australia with no plan and a one-way ticket. And I um, worked there for a year. I worked on a dairy farm. I worked for Patagonia, the store in uh, Sydney. That was pretty instrumental in like learning about some of Patagonia's values and activism. 
from there, I worked as a guide in Juneau, Alaska, where I was giving, um, you know, guided hikes and whale watching tours that had like a science kind of angle to it. From there, I moved to Seoul, South Korea, and I taught English um, and like a science course for grade schoolers um, at an academy that one of my friends was running. And I did that only for like a really short stint. Um, and then from there, I moved to Iceland and I worked with the Environment Agency of Iceland on a trail team. And I did like mitigation projects, um, you know, restoration projects all over the country and I did a lot of like traveling in between that and some other countries um and then I came back in 2016 and the election happened and I knew that if I didn't really get into the game um and fight like hell because I could see what was coming like everyone that I wouldn't be able to live with myself and up to my own personal moral standards and that you know i don't even like calling it the great outdoors whatever the, the whatever it is the great mystical <laughs> spaces that you know we love to hike and camp and stuff like if i didn't um get in the fight to protect them i would i'd regret it and it's been very exhausting rewarding um you know the whole time but I think that having all those weird life experiences like I'm 35 I didn't get this job until I was 34 I went 11 years without a full-time job I really feel like that was hugely instrumental for me personally on my journey I know a lot of people have a much more straightforward path and that works for them I was much more of a process of elimination person and I think that having all those varied experiences particularly in a job as an organizer where my job is to like reach out among different communities and find ways to connect issues with folks is actually, I would never trade that for anything. Um, so uh, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, your, your circuitous path to this point resonates with me, even if I'm 10 years younger than you. So thinking about folks even younger than myself who aren't mid twenties, but let's say mid teens, mm -hmm the young folks that might be listening to this at any point. Um, yeah, I'm going to cast you in that mentor light just for a hot second. What would you say to them if they're listening to all these things, they're hearing all these things about the world they're living in, and they're like, I don't know what to do, or I know exactly what I want to do, but I'm not sure what steps to take. Yeah, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I would say um, one is if, it, if it's like, if, if you're curious about it, do it. I think that, um, which sounds really simple, but I want to kind of touch on something. I think that especially as a super young person, you can hear a lot of no's from maybe it's your parents, maybe it's, you know, other people you look up to and saying, are you doing that? What's the point? How's it going to serve your resume? How are you going to make a career out of that? How are you going to make money out of that? Da, 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 da. And you just have to shut those people out. You just have to shut them out because, um, though they mean well it's not their life it's your life you have to wake up with the decisions you're making tomorrow and uh so if you're curious about something don't think of it in the context of i need to put this on my resume and build my resume because you know people want to work with people that have done things that show 
stuff beyond like your academic uh crap <laughs> like basically like you know like I remember one uh, just the weird things I've done have really stood out to people in interviews when I'm like I volunteered with endangered griffin vultures in Croatia and they're like can you tell me about that and <laughs> yeah like way more than like uh I became proficient at search engine optimization Google analytics like blah 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 no one cares but like no one wants to work with a robot people like to see that you can think for yourself that you're like work with they they want to see these other things that maybe they don't even know they want to see when they're like looking to hire you so I never think you should be making decisions based on what your parents say or like what what is going to like fill out your resume like that's just like sad like if if there's you know you just never know where one thing is going to lead to like did working on the dairy farm with two degrees, like getting pooped on my head at three in the morning, like, was that the dream? No. Um, did it serve a purpose? Definitely. Like, I could easily walk onto a farm right now and be able to, like, talk about whatever and, like, you know, understand and empathize with a farmer or, like, you know, and in my job right now, um, that could be actually really important. Like, agriculture is a big part of Arizona. So, um, yeah. So like, I would say just be curious and like, yeah, just listen, listen to your gut. And sometimes it will be hard to make decisions that um, people might not understand, but you should just do it. Because again, like, you you know, you're gonna, you don't want to wake up when you're like 40 and be like, oops, I never did all those things I thought were cool. Um, I played it safe and like, just watch Netflix every day. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Any final thoughts before uh, we close up shop? Yeah, actually, I'd like to share a quote. To refuse to participate in the shaping of our future is to give it up. Do not be misled into passivity, either by false security, they don't mean me, or by despair. There is nothing we can do. Each of us must find our work and do it. Audrey Lord goosebumps yeah it's a good one yeah love it that is a perfect note to end on and so with that that concludes today's chat about climate poverty and service words are hard sometimes here in tucson arizona you can find new episodes of the tucson climate chats podcast on fridays at anchor.fm forward slash tucson dash climate dash chats or on spotify and most other major audio distributors like the show, comments, questions, compliments, concerns, smart remarks? Feel free to email me, Nick, at nspinelli, S-P-I-N-E-L-L-I, at arizonaserve.org. And gratitude to each and every one of you for the opportunity to do this work, as well as support yours. Onwards. Onwards.